Section twenty nine of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter nineteen. Liability continued. Section one hundred forty five. Wrongs of absolute liability. We now proceed to consider the third class of wrongs, namely those of absolute liability. These are the acts for which a man is responsible irrespective of the existence of either wrongful intent or negligence. They are the exceptions to the rule, actus non facet reum, nisi mens sit rea. It may be thought, indeed, that in the civil, as opposed to the criminal law, absolute liability should be the rule rather than the exception. It may be said, it is clear that in the criminal law liability should in all ordinary cases be based upon the existence of mens rea. No man should be punished criminally unless he knew that he was doing wrong, or might have known it by taking care. Inevitable mistake or accident should be a good defense for him. But why should the same principle apply to civil liability? If I do another man harm, why should I not be made to pay for it? What does it matter to him whether I did it willfully or negligently or by inevitable accident? In either case, I have actually done the harm, and therefore should be bound to undo it by paying compensation. For the essential aim of civil proceedings is redress for harm suffered by the plaintiff, not punishment for wrong done by the defendant. Therefore, the rule of mens rea should be deemed inapplicable. It is clear, however, that this is not the law of England, and it seems equally clear that there is no sufficient reason why it should be. In all those judicial proceedings which fall under the head of penal redress, the determining purpose of the law is not redress but punishment. Redress is, in those cases, merely the instrument of punishment. In itself, it is not a sufficient ground or justification for such proceedings at all. Unless damages are at the same time a deserved penalty inflicted upon the defendant, they are not to be justified as being a deserved recompense awarded to the plaintiff for they in no way undo the wrong or restore the former state of things. The wrong is done and cannot be undone. If by accident I burn down another man's house, the only result of enforcing compensation is that the loss has been transferred from him to me, but it remains as great as ever for all that. The mischief done has been in no degree abated. If I am not in fault, there is no more reason why I should insure other persons against the harmful issues of my own activity then why should insure them against lightning or earthquakes? Unless some definite gain is to be derived by transferring loss from one head to another, sound reason, as well as the law, requires that the loss should lie where it falls. Although the requirement of mens rea is general throughout the civil and criminal law, there are numerous exceptions to it. The considerations on which these are based are various but the most important is the difficulty of procuring adequate proof of intention or negligence. In the majority of instances, indeed, justice requires that this difficulty be honestly faced, but in certain special cases it is allowable to circumvent it by means of a conclusive presumption of the presence of this condition of liability. In this way, we shall certainly punish some who are innocent, but in the case of civil liability, this is not a very serious matter, since men know that in such cases they act at their peril, and are content to take the risk, while in respect of criminal liability such a presumption is seldom resorted to, and only in the case of comparatively trivial offenses. 
Whenever, therefore, the strict doctrine of mens rea would too seriously interfere with the administration of justice by reason of the evidential difficulties involved in it, the law tends to establish a form of absolute liability. In proceeding to consider the chief instances of this kind of liability, we find that the matter falls into three divisions, namely, 1. Mistake of law, 2. Mistake of fact, and 3. Accident. Section 146. Mistake of law. It is a principle recognized not only by our own, but by other legal systems, that ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking it. Ignoratia juris, niminum excusat. The rule is also expressed in the form of a legal presumption that everyone knows the law. The rule is absolute, and the presumption irrebuttable. No diligence of inquiry will avail against it. No inevitable ignorance or error will serve for justification. Whenever a man is thus held accountable for breaking a law which he did not know, and which he could not by due care have acquired a knowledge of, the case is one of absolute liability. The reasons rendered for this somewhat rigorous principle are three in number. In the first place, the law is, in legal theory, definite and knowable. It is the duty of every man to know that part of it which concerns him. Therefore, innocent and inevitable ignorance of the law is impossible. Men are conclusively presumed to know the law, and are dealt with as if they did know it, because they can and ought to know it. In the second place, even if invincible ignorance of the law is in fact possible, the evidential difficulties in the way of the judicial recognition of such ignorance are insuperable, and for the sake of any benefit derivable therefrom, it is not advisable to weaken the administration of justice by making liability dependent on well-nigh inscrutable conditions touching knowledge or means of knowledge of the law. Who can say of any man whether he knew the law, or whether during the course of his past life he had an opportunity of acquiring a knowledge of it, by the exercise of due diligence? Thirdly, and lastly, the law is, in most instances, derived from and in harmony with the rules of natural justice. It is a public declaration by the state of its intention to maintain by force those principles of right and wrong which have already a secure place in the moral consciousness of men. The common law is, in great part, nothing more than common honesty and common sense. Therefore, although a man may be ignorant that he is breaking the law, he knows very well, in most cases, that he is breaking the rule of right. If not to his knowledge lawless, he is at least dishonest and unjust. He has little ground of complaint, therefore, if the law refuses to recognize his ignorance as an excuse, and deals with him according to his moral deserts. He who goes about to harm others when he believes that he can do so, within the limits of the law, may justly be required by the law to know those limits at his peril. This is not a form of activity that need be encouraged by any scrupulous insistence on the formal conditions of legal responsibility. It must be admitted, however, that while each of these considerations is valid and weighty, they do not constitute an altogether sufficient basis for so stringent and severe a rule. None of them goes the full length of the rule. That the law is knowable throughout by all whom it concerns is an ideal rather than a fact in any system as indefinite and mutable as our own. That it is impossible to distinguish invincible from negligent ignorance of the law is by no means wholly true. It may be doubted whether this inquiry is materially more difficult than many which courts of justice undertake without hesitation. That he who breaks the law of the land disregards at the same time the principles of justice and honesty is in many instances far from the truth. 
in a complex legal system a man requires other guidance than that of common sense and good conscience the fact seems to be that the ruling question while in general sound does not in its full extent and uncompromising rigidity admit of any sufficient justification section one hundred and forty seven mistake of fact in respect of the influence of ignorance or error upon legal liability we have inherited from roman law a familiar distinction between law and fact by reason of his ignorance of the law no man will be excused but it is commonly said that inevitable ignorance of fact is a good defense this however is far from an accurate statement of english law it is much more nearly correct to say that mistake of fact is an excuse only within the sphere of the criminal law while in the civil law responsibility is commonly absolute in this respect so far as civil liability is concerned it is a general principle of our law that he who intentionally interferes with the person property reputation or other rightful interests of another does so at his peril and will not be heard to allege that he believed in good faith and on reasonable grounds in the existence of some circumstance which justified his act if i trespass upon another man's land it is no defence to me that i believed it on good grounds to be my own if in absolute innocence and under an inevitable mistake of fact i meddle with another's goods i am liable for all loss incurred by the true owner if intending to arrest a i arrest b by mistake instead i am absolutely liable to him notwithstanding the greatest care taken by me to ascertain his identity if i falsely but innocently make a defamatory statement about another i am liable to him however careful i may have been to ascertain the truth there are indeed exceptions to this rule of absolute civil liability for mistake of fact but they are not of such number or importance as to cast any doubt on the validity of the general principle in the criminal law on the other hand the matter is otherwise and it is here that the contrast between mistake of law and mistake of fact finds its true application absolute criminal responsibility for a mistake of fact is quite exceptional an instance of it is the liability of him who abducts a girl under the legal age of consent inevitable mistake as to her age is no defense he must take the risk a word may be said as to the historical origin of this failure of english law to recognize inevitable mistake as a ground of exemption from civil liability ancient modes of procedure and proof were not adapted for inquiries into mental conditions by the practical difficulties of proof early law was driven to attach exclusive importance to overt acts the subjective elements of wrongdoing were largely beyond proof or knowledge and were therefore disregarded as far as possible it was a rule of our law that intent and knowledge were not matters that could be proved or put in issue it is common learning said one of the judges of king edward the fourth that the intent of man will not be tried for the devil himself knoweth not the intent of man the sole question which the courts would entertain was whether the defendant did the act complained of whether he did it ignorantly or with guilty knowledge was entirely immaterial this rule however was restricted to civil liability it was early recognized that criminal responsibility was too serious a thing to be imposed upon an innocent man simply for the sake of avoiding a difficult inquiry into his knowledge and intention in the case of civil liability on the other hand the rule was general the success with which it has maintained itself in modern law is due in part to its undeniable utility in obviating inconvenient or even impracticable inquiries and in part to the influence of the conception of redress in minimizing the importance of the formal condition of penal liability 
Section 148. Accident. Unlike mistake, inevitable accident is commonly recognized by our law as a ground of exemption from liability. It is needful, therefore, to distinguish accurately between these two things, for they are of near kin. Every act which is not done intentionally is done either accidentally or by mistake. It is done accidentally when it is unintentional in respect of its consequences. It is done by mistake when it is intentional in respect of its consequences, but unintentional in respect of some material circumstance. If I drive over a man in the dark, because I do not know that he is in the road, I injure him accidentally. But if I procure his arrest, because I mistake him for someone who is liable to arrest, I injure him not accidentally, but by mistake. In the former case I did not intend the harm at all, while in the latter case I fully intended it, but falsely believed in the existence of a circumstance which would have served to justify it. So, if by insufficient care I allow my cattle to escape into my neighbor's field, their presence there is due to accident. But if I put them there because I wrongly believe that the field is mine, their presence is due to mistake. In neither case did I intend to wrong my neighbor, but in the one case my intention failed as to the consequence, and in the other as to the circumstance. Accident, like mistake, is either culpable or inevitable. It is culpable when due to negligence, but inevitable when the avoidance of it would have required a degree of care exceeding the standard determined by the law. Culpable accident is no defense, save in those exceptional cases in which wrongful intent is the exclusive and necessary ground of liability. Inevitable accident is commonly a good defense, both in the civil and in the criminal law. To this rule, however, there are, at least in the civil law, important exceptions. There are cases in which the law insists that a man shall act at his peril, and shall take his chance of accidents happening. If he desires to keep wild beasts, or to light fires, or to construct a reservoir of water, or to accumulate on his land any substance which will do damage to his neighbors if it escapes, or to erect dangerous structures by which passengers in the highways may come into harm, he will do all these things suo periculo, although none of them are per se wrongful, and will answer for all ensuing damage notwithstanding consummate care. There is one case of absolute liability for accident which deserves special notice by reason of its historical origin. Every man is absolutely responsible for the trespasses of his cattle. If my horse or my ox escapes from my land to that of another man, I am answerable for it without any proof of negligence. Such a rule may probably be justified as based on a reasonable presumption of law that all such trespasses are the outcome of negligent keeping. Viewed historically, however, the rule is worth notice as one of the last relics of the ancient principle that a man is answerable for all damage done by his property. In the theory of accident law, I am liable for the trespasses of my cattle, not because of my negligent keeping of them, but because of my ownership of them. For the same reason, in Roman law, a master was liable for the offenses of his slaves. The case is really, in its historical origin, one of vicarious liability. In early law and custom, vengeance and its products, responsibility and punishment, were not conceived as necessarily limited to human beings, but were in certain cases extended to dumb animals and even inanimate objects. We have already cited in another connection the provision of the Mosaic Law that, if an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten. In the laws of Plato it is said, 
if a beast of burden or other animal cause the death of any one the kinsmen of the deceased shall prosecute the slayer for murder and the wardens of the country shall try the cause and let the beast when condemned be slain by them and cast beyond the borders so in the laws of king alfred if at their common work of woodcutting one man slay another unwillfully let the tree be given to the kindred and by english law until the year eighteen forty six the weapon or other thing which moved to the death of a man was forfeited to the king as guilty and accursed here we have the ground of a rule of absolute liability if a man's cattle or his slaves do damage they are thereby exposed to the vengeance of the injured person but to take destructive vengeance upon them is to impose a penalty upon their owner the liability thence resulting probably passed through three stages first that of unconditional forfeiture or surrender of the property to the vengeance of the injured person secondly that of an option given to the owner between forfeiture and redemption the actiones noxalis of roman law and thirdly that of compulsory redemption or in other words unconditional compensation section one hundred and forty nine vicarious responsibility hitherto we have dealt exclusively with the conditions of liability and it is needful now to consider its incidence normally and naturally the person who is liable for a wrong is he who does it yet both ancient and modern law admit instances of vicarious liability in which one man is made answerable for the acts of another criminal responsibility indeed is never vicarious at the present day except in very special circumstances and in certain of its less serious forms in more primitive systems however the impulse to extend vicariously the incidence of liability receives free scope in a manner altogether alien to modern notions of justice it is in barbarous times considered a very natural thing to make every man answerable for those who are of kin to him in the mosaic legislation it is deemed necessary to lay down the express rule that the fathers shall not be put to death for the children neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers let every man be put to death for his own sin plato in his laws does not deem it needless to emphasize the same principle furthermore so long as punishment is conceived rather as expatiative retributive and vindictive than as deterrent and reformative there seems no reason why the incidence of liability should not be determined by consent and therefore why a guilty man should not provide a substitute to bear his penalty and to provide the needful satisfaction to the law guilt must be wiped out by punishment but there is no reason why the victim should be one person rather than another such modes of thought have long since ceased to pervert the law but that they were at one time natural is rendered sufficiently evident by their survival in popular theology modern civil law recognizes vicarious liability in two chief classes of cases in the first place masters are responsible for the acts of their servants done in the course of their employment in the second place representatives of dead men are liable for deeds done in the flesh by those whom they represent we shall briefly consider each of these two forms it has been sometimes said that the responsibility of a master for his servant has its historical source in the responsibility of an owner for his slave this however is certainly not the case the english doctrine of employers liability is of comparatively recent growth it has its origin in the legal presumption gradually become conclusive that all acts done by a servant in and about his master's business are done by his master's express or implied authority and are therefore in truth the acts of the master for which he may be justly held responsible 
no employer will be allowed to say that he did not authorize the act complained of or even that it was done against his express injunctions for he is liable nonetheless this conclusive presumption of authority has now after the manner of such presumptions disappeared from the law after having permanently modified it by establishing the principle of employer's liability historically as we have said this is a fictitious extension of the principle qui facet per alium factet per se formerly it has been reduced to the laconic maxim respondeat superior the rational basis of this form of vicarious liability is in the first place evidential there are such immense difficulties in the way of proving actual authority that it is necessary to establish a conclusive presumption of it a word a gesture or a tone may be sufficient indication from a master to his servant that some lapse from the legal standard of care or honesty will be deemed acceptable service yet who could prove such a measure of complicity who could establish liability in such a case were evidence of authority required or evidence of the want of it admitted a further reason for the vicarious responsibility of employers is that employers usually are while their servants usually are not financially capable of the burden of civil liability it is felt probably with justice that a man who is able to make compensation for the hurtful results of his activities should not be enabled to escape from the duty of doing so by delegating the exercise of those activities to servants or agents from whom no redress can be obtained such delegation confers upon impecunious persons means and opportunities of mischief which would otherwise be confined to those who are financially competent it disturbs the correspondence which would otherwise exist between the capacity of doing harm and the capacity of paying for it it is requisite for the efficacy of civil justice that this delegation of powers and functions should be permitted only on the condition that he who delegates them shall remain answerable for the acts of his servants as he would be for his own a second form of vicarious responsibility is that of living representatives for the acts of dead men there is no doubt that criminal responsibility must die with the wrongdoer himself but with respect to penal redress the question is not free from difficulty for in this form of liability there is a conflict between the requirements of the two competing principles of punishment and compensation the former demands the termination of liability with the life of the wrongdoer while the latter demands its survival in this dispute the older common law approved the first of these alternatives the received maxim was actio personalis moritur cum persona a man cannot be punished in his grave therefore it was held that all actions for penal redress being in their true nature instruments of punishment must be brought against the living offender and must die with him modern opinion rejects this conclusion and by various statutory provisions the old rule has been in great part abrogated it is considered that although liability to afford redress ought to depend in point of origin upon the requirements of punishment it should depend in point of continuance upon those of compensation for when this form of liability has once come into existence it is a valuable right of the person wronged and it is expedient that such rights should be held upon secure tenure and should not be subject to extinction by a mere irrelevant accident such as the death of the offender there is no sufficient reason for drawing any distinction in point of survival between the right of a creditor to recover his debt and the right of a man who has been injured by assault or defamation to recover compensation for the loss suffered by him as a further argument in the same sense it is to be observed that it is not strictly true that a man cannot be punished after his death punishment is effective not at the time it is inflicted 
but at the time it is threatened a threat of evil to be inflicted upon a man's descendants at the expense of his estate will undoubtedly exercise a certain deterrent influence upon him and the apparent injustice of so punishing his descendants for the offence of their predecessor is in most cases no more than apparent the right of succession is merely the right to acquire the dead man's estate subject to all charges which on any grounds and apart altogether from the interests of the successors themselves may justly be imposed upon it there is a second application of the maxim actio personalis morator cum persona which seems equally destitute of justification according to the common law an action for penal redress died not merely with the wrongdoer but also with the person wronged this rule has been abrogated by statute in part only there can however be little doubt that in all ordinary cases if it is right to punish a person at all his liability should not cease simply by reason of the death of him against whom his offence was committed the right of the person injured to receive redress should descend to his representatives like any other proprietary interest section one hundred and fifty the measure of criminal liability we have now considered the conditions and the incidence of penal liability it remains to deal with the measure of it and here we must distinguish between criminal and civil wrongs for the principles involved are fundamentally different in the two cases in considering the measure of criminal liability it will be convenient to bestow exclusive attention upon the deterrent purpose of the criminal law remembering however that the conclusions so obtained are subject to possible modification by reference to those subordinate and incidental purposes of punishment which we thus provisionally disregard were men perfectly rational so as to act invariably in accordance with an enlightened estimate of consequences the question of the measure of punishment would present no difficulty a draconian simplicity and severity would be perfectly just and perfectly effective it would be possible to act on the stoic paradox that all offences involve equal guilt and to visit with the utmost rigour of the law every deviation however slight from the appointed way in other words if the deterrent effect of severity were certain and complete the best law would be that which by the most extreme and undiscriminating severity effectually extinguished crime were human nature so constituted that a threat of burning all offenders alive would with certainty prevent all breaches of the law then this would be the just and fitting penalty for all offences from high treason to petty larceny so greatly however are men moved by the impulse of the moment rather than by a rational estimate of future good and evil and so ready are they to face any future evil which falls short of the inevitable that the utmost rigour is sufficient only for the diminution of crime not for the extinction of it it is needful therefore in judging the merits of the law to subtract from the sum of good which results from the partial prevention of offences the sum of evil which results from the partial failure of prevention and the consequent necessity of fulfilling those threats of evil by which the law had hoped to effect its purpose the perfect law is that in which the difference between the good and the evil is at a maximum in favour of the good and the rules as to the measure of criminal liability are the rules for the attainment of this maximum it is obvious that it is not attainable by an indefinite increase of severity to substitute hanging for imprisonment as a punishment for petty theft would doubtless diminish the frequency of this offence but it is certain that the evil so prevented would be far outweighed by that which the law would be called on to inflict in the cases in which its threats proved unavailing 
In every crime, there are three elements to be taken into account in determining the appropriate measure of punishment. These are, one, the motives to the commission of the offense, two, the magnitude of the offense, and three, the character of the offender. One, the motive of the offense. Other things being equal, the greater the temptation to commit a crime, the greater should be the punishment. This is an obvious deduction from the first principles of criminal liability. The object of punishment is to counteract, by the establishment of contrary and artificial motives, the natural motives which lead to crime. The stronger these natural motives, the stronger must be the counteractives which the law supplies. If the profit to be derived from an act is great, or the passions which lead men to it are violent, a corresponding strength or violence is an essential condition of the efficacy of repressive discipline. We shall see later, however, that this principle is subject to a very important limitation, and that there are many cases in which extreme temptation is a ground of extenuation, rather than of increased severity of punishment. 2. The magnitude of the offense. Other things being equal, the greater the offense, that is to say, the greater the sum of its evil consequences or tendencies, the greater should be its punishment. At first sight, indeed, it would seem that this consideration is irrelevant. Punishment, it may be thought, should be measured solely by the profit derived by the offender, not by the evils caused to other persons. If two crimes are equal in point of motive, they should be equal in point of punishment, notwithstanding the fact that one of them may be many times more mischievous than the other. This, however, is not so, and the reason is twofold. A. The greater the mischief of any offense, the greater is the punishment, which it is profitable to inflict with the hope of preventing it. For the greater this mischief, the less is the proportion which the evil of punishment bears to the good of prevention, and therefore the greater is the punishment which can be inflicted before the balance of good over evil attains its maximum. Assuming the motives of larceny and of homicide to be equal, it may be profitable to inflict capital punishment for the latter offense, although it is certainly unprofitable to inflict it for the former. The increased measure of prevention that would be obtained by such severity would, in view of the comparatively trivial nature of the offense, be obtained at too great a cost. B. A second and subordinate reason for making punishment vary with the magnitude of the offense is that, in those cases in which different offenses offer themselves as alternatives to the offender, an inducement is thereby given for the preference of the least serious. If the punishment of burglary is the same as that of murder, the burglar has obvious motives for not stopping at the lesser crime. If an attempt is punished as severely as a completed offense, why should any man repent of his half-executed purposes? 3. The character of the offender. The worse the character or disposition of the offender, the more severe should be his punishment. Badness of disposition is constituted either by the strength of the impulses to crime, or by the weakness of the impulses toward law-abiding conduct. One man may be worse than another because of the greater strength and prevalence within him of such antisocial passions as anger, covetousness, or malice. Or his badness may lie in a deficiency of those social impulses and instincts which are the springs of right conduct in normally constituted men. In respect of all the graver forms of law-breaking, for one man who abstains from them for fear of the law, there are thousands who abstain by reason of quite other influences. Their sympathetic instincts, their natural affections, their religious beliefs, their love of the approbation of others, their pride and self-respect, render superfluous the threatenings of the law. 
in the degree in which these impulses are dominant and operative the disposition of a man is good in the degree in which they are wanting or inefficient it is bad in both its kinds badness of disposition is a ground for severity of punishment if a man's emotional constitution is such that normal temptation acts upon him with abnormal force it is for the law to supply in double measure the counteractive of penal discipline if he is so made that the natural influences toward well-doing fall below the level of average humanity the law must supplement them by artificial influences of a strength that is needless in ordinary cases any fact therefore which indicates depravity of disposition is a circumstance of aggravation and calls for a penalty in excess of that which would otherwise be appropriate to the offence one of the most important of these facts is the repetition of crime by one who has already been punished the law rightly imposes upon habitual offenders penalties which bear no relation either to the magnitude or to the profit of the offence a punishment adapted for normal men is not appropriate for those who by their repeated defiance of it prove their possession of abnormal natures a second case in which the same principle is applicable is that in which the mischief of an offence is altogether disproportionate to any profit to be derived from it by the offender to kill a man from mere wantonness or merely in order to facilitate the picking of his pocket is proof of extraordinary depravity beyond anything that is imputable to him who commits homicide only through the stress of passionate indignation or under the influence of great temptation a third case is that of offences from which normal humanity is adequately dissuaded by such influences as those of natural defection to kill one's father is in point of magnitude no worse a crime than any other homicide but it has at all times been viewed with greater abhorrence and by some laws punished with greater severity by reason of the depth of depravity which it indicates in the offender lastly it is on the same principle that wilful offences are punished with greater rigour than those which are due merely to negligence an additional and subordinate reason for making the measure of liability depend upon the character of the offender is that badness of disposition is commonly accompanied by deficiency of sensibility punishment must increase as sensibility diminishes the more depraved the offender the less he feels the shame of punishment therefore the more he must be made to feel the pain of it a certain degree of even physical insensibility is said to characterize the more degraded orders of criminals and the indifference with which death itself is faced by those who in the callousness of their hearts have not scrupled to inflict it upon others is a matter of amazement to normally constituted men we are now in a position to deal with a question which we have already touched upon but deferred for fuller consideration namely the apparent paradox involved in the rule that punishment must increase with the temptation to the offence as a general rule this proposition is true but it is subject to a very important qualification for in certain cases the temptation to which a man succumbs may be of such a nature as to rebut that presumption of bad disposition which would in ordinary circumstances arise from the commission of the offence he may for example be driven to the act not by the strength of any bad or self-regarding motives but by that of his social or sympathetic impulses in such a case the greatness of the temptation considered in itself demand severity of punishment but when considered as a disproof of the degraded disposition which usually accompanies wrongdoing it demands leniency and the latter of these two conflicting considerations may be of sufficient importance to outweigh the other if a man remains honest until he is driven in despair to steal food for his starving children it is perfectly consistent with the deterrent theory of punishment to deal with him less severely than with him who steals from no other motive than cupidity 
he who commits homicide from motives of petty gain or to attain some trivial purpose deserves to be treated with the utmost severity as a man thoroughly callous and deprived but he who kills another in retaliation for some intolerable insult or injury need not be dealt with according to the measure of his temptations but should rather be excused on account of them section one hundred and fifty one the measure of civil liability penal redress is that form of penal liability in which the law uses the compulsory compensation of the person injured as an instrument for the punishment of the offender it is characteristic of this form of punishment that it takes account of one only of the three considerations which as we have seen rightly determine the measure of penal responsibility it is measured exclusively by the magnitude of the offense that is to say by the amount of loss inflicted by it it takes no account of the character of the offender and so visits him who does harm through some trivial want of care with as severe a penalty as if his act had been prompted by deliberate malice similarly it takes no account of the motives of the offence he who has everything and he who has nothing to gain are equally punished if the damage done by them is equal finally it takes no account of probable or intended consequences but solely of those which actually ensue wherefore the measure of a wrongdoer's liability is not the evil which he meant to do but that which he has succeeded in doing and his punishment is determined not by his fault but by the accident of the result if one man is dealt with more severely than another it is not because he is more guilty but because he has had the misfortune to be more successful in his wrongful purposes or less successful in the avoidance of unintended issues serious as are these lapses from the due standard of penal discipline it is not to be suggested that this form of civil liability is unjustifiable the use of redress as an instrument of punishment possesses advantages more than sufficient to counterbalance any such objections to it more especially it possesses this that while other forms of punishment such as imprisonment are uncompensated evil penal redress is the gain of him who is wronged as well as the loss of the wrongdoer further this form of remedy gives to persons injured a direct interest in the efficient administration of justice an interest which is almost absent in the case of criminal law it is true however that the law of penal redress taken by itself falls so far short of the requirements of a rational scheme of punishment that it would by itself be totally insufficient in all modern and developed bodies of law its operation is supplemented and its deficiencies made good by a coordinate system of criminal liability these two together combined in due proportions constitute a very efficient instrument for the maintenance of justice summary wrongs of absolute liability mens rea not required are exceptional nature of such wrongs penal redress is justified not as redress but as punishment mistake of law commonly no defense reasons for the rule criticisms of it mistake of fact a defense in criminal but commonly not in civil cases accident distinction between accident and mistake accident and mistake being culpable or inevitable inevitable accident commonly a defense and exceptions incidents of penal liability vicarious liability one employer's liability its rational basis two liability of representatives of dead men its rational basis the measure of penal liability one criminal liability reasons against indiscriminate severity the end to be attained the considerations to be taken account of including a the motive of the offense 
b the magnitude of the offence c the character of the offender two civil liability merits and demerits of the use of compulsory compensation as an instrument of punishment end of section twenty nine